Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Today's topic is Solutions for Endometriosis Sufferers. I'm so very excited about today's show because my special guest is Dr. Jordan Robertson. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Jordan Robertson is a naturopathic doctor and women's health author. Through her experience in medical literature review, critical appraisal, and research, Dr. Robertson has published over 12 literature reviews on women's health and has worked closely with McMaster University, writing and facilitating courses on integrative medicine for the last 10 years, speaking for their medical school, and working off-site for the endometriosis clinic at McMaster Hospital. Dr. Robertson has most recently lectured for the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors Convention on PCOS, PMS, PMDD, and endometriosis, and has, and has published a book for women called Carrying to Term on Reducing Miscarriage Risk. In her clinical practice, she focuses on women's health issues, including PMS, PCOS, infertility, menopause, and breast cancer recovery. Dr. Robertson, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about, like, just very simply, what is endometriosis for those people out there that are not quite sure what it is? And can you tell us about what your background, like, how did you get interested on treating endometriosis? Sure. So endometriosis is, well, it's a gynecological concern where women have abnormal growth of endometrial tissue outside of their uterus. Um, And so in these women, they have these, we call them like satellite lesions, where there are spots that um, are having endometrial growth or having growth of um, like menstrual tissue, but outside of the uterus. And so rather than, um, you know, having normal menstrual flow and, and normal menstrual experience, which should be pain-free, um, these women have these satellite lesions that essentially respond to the same hormonal cues or same hormonal changes that normal endometrium responds to. So they ebb and flow and they grow and bleed, except they those satellite lesions are in the pelvic cavity or they're somewhere that they're not supposed to be. And, and that ebb and flow and that growth and bleeding process has nowhere to go, right? So unlike sort of a normal menstrual experience where the endometrial lining is shed every month, these satellite lesions are creating 
chronic inflammation, chronic pain, and a chronic immune response, given that they are growing and bleeding, but with really nowhere to go. So that's kind of the best way to describe it in in layman's terms. Um, The curious part about it is we're not quite sure um, how those lesions get there, right? We have some theories about that. We think, um, you know, that most women have some uh, menstrual tissue that does, you know, sort of backtrack through the fallopian tubes and does end up in the pelvic cavity. Um, but what we're starting to try and figure out is, well, why would some women have those um, those cells and, and that menstrual tissue that escapes the uterus? Why do some women develop endometriosis and some women don't? We don't quite understand that yet. Um, and then you can also see endometrial or endometriosis lesions not in the pelvic cavity. So, you know, in rarer cases, women have it growing, um, you know, in the lung or in other tissues that, you know, uh, certainly anatomically are not related to the uterus. And so in those women, we don't quite understand. But the basic gist of it is that we have endometrial tissue growing outside of the uterine, um, uterine cavity. And then that's creating a lot of pain and a lot of inflammation for these women. And so they experience their menstrual symptoms much more severely than women without endometriosis. And how did you get involved in treating endometriosis? It actually dates back. And when I was a a third year uh, university student, so undergraduate student, um, I was very interested in immunology and did, you know, as many sort of Uh, advanced immunology courses as I could. And my fourth year endometrial, or sorry, my fourth year immunology um, presentation was on endometriosis. And so at that time, it would have been like 2002, 2003. That was sort of the first glimpse we had at endometriosis being uh, an immune triggered condition. So it was just at that time we were starting to realize that the immune system in those women was not behaving normally and almost more like an autoimmune like tendency where the immune system rather than helping these women was actually perpetuating inflammation and that their T cells and the the cells related to, um, you know, what would typically be related to the sort of cleaning up uh, cells that are where they don't belong in these women, their immune systems weren't behaving properly and were starting to uh, perpetuate the problem rather than solve it. So that was my sort of first glimpse at that, um, was looking at all the research that connected uh, endometriosis to that sort of autoimmune component to it. Um, and then from there, I, you know, I maintained that interest. I, I wrote case reports on it um, and a uh, sort of a literature review um, in 2009 that was published on all of the natural treatments um, for endometriosis and some of the mechanisms behind, you know, why do we think turmeric is beneficial? You know, why do we think uh, fish oil might be beneficial? I wrote a review article on that in 2009 and then was fortunate enough to be asked by the endometriosis clinic to be their offsite naturopathic doctor. And so um, the clinic at McMaster University, um, when patients are looking for treatments that don't interfere with their fertility, uh, as most treatments for endometriosis are are sort of block hormones, and so they are not uh, very pro-fertility, patients who are looking for a more natural approach to their pain management, because often these women are on... um, 
pretty significant painkillers and even opioids to try and manage their pain. Um, I work with their patients um, offsite in my in my office, and so it's sort of been a labor of love over the last like fifteen years, um, trying to understand this condition and and help these women that are in such significant pain. So you brought up something that's really key as far as what causes endometriosis, and you said it has to do more with the immune system as opposed to the conventional treatment, which is really just aimed at hormones. Right. So sort of conventionally what we have realized is if we, so what we found is that women who have endometriosis, if they happened to get pregnant, they often had regression of their symptoms and of their lesions during pregnancy because the hormone changes that happen during pregnancy essentially stunt the growth of those satellite lesions. And so what we try and do for conventional treatment is to mimic that, right? And we're either using at the very lowest end things like uh, oral contraceptives um, and then at the highest end drugs like Lupron um, or that are blocking hormonal function from the pituitary to try and um, stop that that natural ebb and flow of their menstrual cycle because that's what's perpetuating the growth. Um, I mean, certainly we find that most women don't, um, it's not completely cured, right, by doing that or or with surgical removal. The, the um, recurrence rate is, is really high uh, no matter what treatment we use conventionally. And so certainly we're kind of there's parts of this syndrome that we don't understand, right? There's some underlying factors in those women that even if we suppress their hormonal function, it's not solving the problem per se. So yes, we're starting to look at things like the immune system. There's some evidence that these women may metabolize hormones differently, um, that they may uh, metabolize environmental estrogens and hormones differently than other women. And so they have, say, a more difficult time of clearing environmental estrogens from their body than um, than women without endometriosis. So the one that they've spent the most time on in the research are, are the sort of dioxin family of toxins, uh, which we can talk about. Um, and um, we also know that those women... Um, differ in their progesterone reception. So their uterine cells, even that those aren't, aren't sort of typical, right? They don't, they don't respond to progesterone, which generally um, sort of matures that uterine lining and decreases inflammation. Um, women with endometriosis don't do that well either. And so just by blunting their hormones, we're certainly not um, treating the root cause. So so you just mentioned many different things as far as treating the root cause. So we've, we've talked about there is an immune component, that there usually is some kind of envir- environmental toxin component, and, and you just quickly mentioned dioxin, and we'll talk more about that. And then from a hormonal perspe- perspective, that hormones can make, be metabolized differently, and progesterone receptors don't work as well. So there's so much to cover, and we have about 20 more minutes. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> Where, where should we start on these topics? Um, well, I think for me, one of the where my interests lie with endometriosis partly is around assessment. Um, I think we underestimate uh, how many women suffer with endometriosis because the gold standard for diagnosis is laparoscopic surgery. And so they identify it and they treat it. Um, 
at the same time. And so with many women who walk around with very poorly managed menstrual cycles with significant pain, and unless they have laparoscopic surgery, we can't sort of di- like definitively diagnose them with endometriosis. And so we you know, can imagine that there's many women who have not been offered that opportunity um, or who believe that their pain that they experience is, is normal or typical. Um, there, you know, some of the advances in research and assessment is identifying that uh, there is a blood test um, that can rule in endometriosis for women. And so I like to, um, you know, given that I have an opportunity to sort of communicate with many women here, there is an opportunity to test. Um, it's called CA125, which was typically a cancer marker for endo, uh, sorry, for ovarian cancer. Um, it actually does run positive in many women with endometriosis. And so just as a, as a starting part or starting um, step, women can have that blood test um, and rule in endometriosis. It doesn't rule it out, unfortunately, if it's negative, but it does rule in endometriosis or make us highly suspicious um, if that pairs with a clinical history of women with really significant menstrual um, concerns. So that's important, I think, to, to sort of let your listeners know that there, there are some accessible ways to be better assessed for endometriosis. And I would say if you're using Tylenol or Advil or naproxen, um, you know, more than once or twice during your menstrual cycle that you really should have a conversation with your practitioner about um, the possibility of having endometriosis. So that, I think, is important. Um, from, a, from a treatment perspective, um, you know, you're right. There's, there's sort of these multiple avenues. And, and like, what, what would you like to focus on? Because you're right, we don't have a, and it is such a complex um, disease. Um, what do you think is, is sort of the most relevant? So let's, t- let's talk about a little bit of all of them, about the immune aspect. How, how would you assess it? How would you treat it? The um, progesterone receptor aspect, how would you assess it? How would you treatment? Environmental toxins, dioxin, et cetera. Okay, sure. <laughs> so, I mean, from, from an assessment perspective, beyond um, saying yes or no that women have endometriosis, Yes, we have some sort of really interesting research studies on different kinds of immune cells that are activated and whatnot. Um, That's not very practical for us to assess women um, from a lab perspective, with maybe the exception of vitamin D. So we know that vitamin D is really concentrated in the decidua, which is the that um, uterine lining and really influences the immune system. Um, Best example of this is the impact that vitamin D has on miscarriage reduction. So when women are attempting to get pregnant, their immune system needs to be quite on board with accepting that embryo. The same thing happens with endometriosis, and we know that the lower their vitamin D status, the greater their pain, the greater their use of analgesic drugs. And so by mitigating um, that sort of immune dysfunction, adding vitamin D appears to reduce inflammation and reduce some of that immune dysfunction in women with endometriosis. So I usually recommend that uh, my women are, are assessed for vitamin D deficiency and then treated adequately to make sure that their levels are sort of in that 110 to 120 range um, to ensure sort of the most optimal um, immune function in their uterine tissue. Um, the so that from an assessment perspective, I think that sort of um, is our best 
sort of surrogate marker for immune function in in the uterine lining. Unfortunately, we don't have much more beyond that at this point. Um, Even though I was studying it back in 2003, all we know is that there's abnormalities in the immune system. I mean, when we look at things from a more functional medicine perspective, um, we can certainly see the impact that anti-inflammatories like turmeric, um, resveratrol is uh, emerging as a potential treatment option for endometriosis. Uh, fish oil is exerting an anti-inflammatory impact. And so they are all sort of uh, diverting the immune system away from that very sort of pro-inflammatory state that seems to perpetuate in endometriosis. Um, the, the hormonal stuff is interesting um, because we generally, you're right, uh, conventionally treat endometriosis just by suppressing all hormonal function, um, which from a fertility perspective is not really an option for women to have their cycle suppressed like that ongoing, right? At some point, they need to come off of the drug therapy. Um, There's actually quite a bit of evidence that women who are struggling with fertility should be on hormonal suppressive therapy for three to six months before they attempt to get pregnant because that helps dampen their disease before we try and get pregnant. Um, But those women actually do benefit from uh, additional progesterone supplementation, um, especially around cycles where they're attempting to get pregnant because their their, uh, progesterone receptors are lowered in their endometrial lining and they're not as sensitive or responsive to their own progesterone. So, for example, if a woman makes adequate progesterone, her uterine lining still doesn't respond in a way we would expect. So it doesn't mature at the rate we would expect um, in a woman without endometriosis. And so the additional application of progesterone in those cases often helps, certainly from a fertility perspective, support sort of adequate um, uterine lining. What we don't know is whether we should just use progesterone in women who are not trying to get pregnant. Um, There's not quite enough data on that yet, although if women are against using um, sort of centrally suppressing drugs like Lupron or other uh, GnRH inhibitors, then I would say it would certainly be worth a try, given that progesterone is is a relatively safe, um, safe drug. Okay, fantastic. And then when it comes to environmental toxins... How do you assess that? Do you assess that or do you just treat that? Um, I would say I just usually treat it empirically. I, I, we, the things we know about and women who have endometriosis, so when we look at observational studies on women with endometriosis, and we have collected data on thousands and thousands of women, um, we know that they eat more saturated fat, they eat more high-fat dairy, They eat less polyunsaturated fats in their diet. They eat more refined carbohydrates. They eat less antioxidants and they drink more alcohol. So if we look just observationally, we know that from a diet perspective, they're certainly swinging their diet more in favor of that very standard North American diet, but they also are creating a high sort of exposure to environmental um, dioxins, which is the one that we've spent, say, the most time on in the research, their diets naturally, even if we just watch women with endometriosis, are higher exposure to dioxin compounds or estrogen-like compounds um, through their food. So 
we have studied in animal models the impact of environmental estrogens on endometriosis. And so some of the most original research done on endometriosis was done on rhesus monkeys, which is a very good model for this disease. They actually naturally have endometriosis in their population. So rhesus monkeys have endometriosis naturally. Um, And we found that by exposing them to environmental toxicity, such as dioxins, not only increased the frequency of endometriosis in their population, but also increased the severity of the female monkeys who had endometriosis. And so that has led to you know, further studies on on why this may be a concern um, in the human population, because this is something that's endemic in our food source. Um, And so even, you know, where, you know, we say we have hormone-free meat and whatnot in Canada, um, this is an an environmental uh, toxin, not a uh, not a hormone added to meat per se. Um, and le- many government uh, websites, so even the Health Canada website, does list the most common sources, food sources of dioxins. Um, and if you look at it, it's actually all of the um, sort of high fat containing meat that has the highest amount of dioxins and parts per million. Um, and so that, I mean, it sort of makes sense when we look at our observational data that those women actually are gravitating to those foods or they naturally would eat more of those foods. So I have a discussion about that with my patients about what we observe in women with endometriosis and what we think mechanistically might be happening. Um, there's some data that women with endometriosis have higher dioxin content in their pelvic cavity than women without and that they have liver um, as the cytochrome P450 enzymes, they genetically lack the ability to detoxify from these environmental toxins at a rate that keeps them clear um, versus women who don't have endometriosis, which, you know, they can have this environmental exposure and very easily sort of detoxify from it and, and deal with it. And so I coach my women to decrease the frequency of, of consuming foods that we know have a high dioxin content and then try and reverse what we see observationally in women with endometriosis and so higher vegetarian protein higher flax higher polyunsaturated fats higher olive oil higher antioxidant um you know there's studies that just by giving vitamin c and vitamin e in like dietary doses reduce pain and reduce analgesic use and so my preference would be to coach women around how to have a more variety in their diet that encourages like better antioxidant intake. Um, I think we can probably mimic what we see in those very low dose studies um, just through diet alone. Fantastic. So we've covered the immune aspect. We've covered um, progesterone receptors and environmental toxins. Um, is there anything else when it comes to what we think are underlying causes and treatment for endometriosis that we haven't covered yet? That we haven't covered. Um, I don't think so. Um, yeah, I think that that really covers the sort of aspects of the disease. I mean, I find this disease really fascinating because it has that sort of autoimmune component. Um, but it also very much has sort of cancer-like properties to it, right? So it creates its own network of blood vessels. It perpetuates its own survival through... Um, you know, production of estrogen, you know, right at its own site. And estrogen is what sort of propagates the growth. Um, It manipulates your immune system around the lesion to sort of support its own uh, survival. So I do find it really um, fascinating, this condition, I think, and, and sort of 
all that dysfunction really speaks to how important it is to come at it from multiple directions, right? That just suppressing hormonal function or just doing surgical removal um, or even just doing natural therapies in lots of cases are really only targeting maybe one or two aspects of the disease. Um, I think these women probably deserve to have a very sort of multifactorial approach to their case to try and help um, come at it from, from so many points of contact because of how complex it is as a disease, right? It's not, it's not a simple disease. Um, the last thing I'll say is like my, my primary role with most women is looking at analgesic reduction. Um, and there's two great studies um, that I would want to point out um, that are looking specifically at reducing the need for analgesics. And I track this in my patients. And so in their initial visit, we track how many days they use pain medication, what kind of pain medication, and the, and how many um, painkillers they use, not just in a menstrual cycle, but all month long. Because often women, especially with severe endometriosis, will have pain all month long. Um, so we track this, and there's two studies specifically, or two groups of studies looking specifically at ginger for menstrual cramps with endometriosis, um, as well as melatonin. And so both of those anti-inflammatory slash antioxidants have pretty significant data for reducing the number of painkillers women use in a given month. Um, and given the number of women that are sort of escalating the, uh, the severity of their treatment, meaning they're moving from, say, Advil to uh, naproxen and maybe moving from naproxen to codeine, um, we certainly would want to influence the experience of their pain on a monthly basis. That's a very sort of tangible outcome uh, we can have with patients that really change their um, their quality of life and their, their ability to function from month to month. Fantastic. So you've presented a lot of great information for our listeners as far as what we think are some of the root underlying causes and then how to manage treatment accordingly and then from a you know, when when we look at a case and managing a case, what do you think would be like realistic expectations for a patient who has what has endometriosis or what we suspect as endometriosis um, as far as um, how fast should they get better, Jordan? <laughs> that, <laughs> um, that's what I, patients are, always want to know. Will I be better you right. know, in my next cycle? Oh, probably not. Like it takes time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say, like, I'd like to see some analgesic uh, use reduction, so a reduction in the number of pills they're using, sort of within a month. The Most of the data on ginger is actually done month to month, um, and, and so I'd like to see a reduction, at least in that, um, in the first month. I would like to see uh, a substantial decrease in pain, um, a decrease in pain with bowel movement and intercourse and all of the things that are sort of part of that symptom picture um, in about a three-month window of time. And certainly that depends really greatly on how compliant patients are to making those changes as well, since so much of it is diet and lifestyle based. Um, I mean, I think just using supplements alone are probably going to have some uh, limitation in how much improvement patients can expect. But if patients are willing to, you know, sort of comply with the diet and, and add in add in the supplementation, my expectation is that we have some pretty significant improvement by sort of that, you know, 12 to 16 week mark. Um, and it starts to build on itself, right? Because this, um, the condition is 
so hormonally sensitive that those lesions are are building and building with every passing month. If we can sort of take it out at the knees and and decrease some of that input, like that input, um, you know, that that starts to sort of build on itself as well. That we can really have the snowball roll down the other hill and have patients start to see improvement month over month um, as long as they continue, to, you know, sort of to work on their health plan. And so I can see initially that the patient might need more visits to tackle all of these different issues. And then as they get better, um, they that often patients likely need some amount of ongoing support too, because this is, there's like, there's not a cure for this. This is continual management. For sure. And especially, I mean, we have great data for acupuncture. Um, There's things that really should be monitored over time, like their vitamin D status. So I would say my really well-managed patients, we probably check in twice a year. Um, CA-125, if it's been positive in a patient, can actually be used to track progress, which is great. So we know that after surgery or after adding Lupron, or we hope that with adding sort of a more functional medicine approach that you would see a reduction in CA-125 over a period of of six months um, if you're on the right track. And so in many of our patients, we are monitoring or we're attempting to monitor their disease activity with a CA-125, as well as repeating vitamin D because women with uh, endometriosis may not respond to vitamin D supplementation as well as other women. And so it's important to check in uh, every six months around vitamin D status to make sure that they're being supplemented enough. Um, you know, there are studies that are looking at using even up to 200,000 units of vitamin D before uh, a menstrual cycle to try and change uh, pain, um, which that really needs to be monitored with lab work. Like those are really heroic doses that we're seeing in the studies. And so I insist that my patients are tested on an ongoing basis. So, Jordan, we just have a few minutes left. You've given our listeners a lot of great information today. Is there anything that we forgot to talk about that you think is important to mention? Um, I don't think so. I think, you know, one of the, the, the most challenging components of endometriosis, I would say, is, is from a fertility and, and miscarriage side. Uh, endometriosis causes infertility and miscarriage for a thousand reasons, um, and it's important that women have that, that understand that, that, right, like using, you know, one uh, treatment approach is probably not enough to give them the kind of results that they want and to have a successful pregnancy and, and healthy pregnancy. Um, and in my opinion, that's one area that we sort of under educate women about um, if they have endometriosis, even if they don't have significant pain the inflammation and the immune dysfunction and all the things that are part of that that picture of that disease uh, decrease the likelihood of falling pregnant and increase your risk of miscarriage. Um, so I'd say that's maybe the one thing we didn't uh, uh, touch on a ton, but it, it really just speaks to the fact that I think that women need a very multifactorial treatment plan um, in order to overcome the complexity of, of the disease. And Jordan, how can our listeners find out more about you? And can you mention your book again? I can. Um, so I'm very prominent on social media. Um, I am um, on Instagram uh, with the handle Dr. Jordan ND, Dr. as in DR. 
uh, Jordan ND. Uh, we're prominent on Facebook. And then, yeah, we've just published, or I've just published uh, my first book called Carrying to Term, uh, which is available on Amazon. It's available on iTunes for electronic download and then Amazon for hard copy. Um, and that book touches on not just endometriosis, but our most common causes of miscarriage that we can influence with medication, diet, and lifestyle. It's a, it's a book that is really about empowering women to um, to be advocates for better assessment, for earlier assessment in their fertility journey, um, and how to get access to the right kind of care, and then things that they can do that are very practical to reduce their miscarriage risk, whether that's through diet or whether that's through supplementation. Um, and so in that book, we touch on uh, PCOS. We talk about luteal phase defect, which is another sort of low progesterone um, situation. We talk about endometriosis. We talk about premature ovarian failure, um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and so many of the more common like hormonally uh, triggered causes of miscarriage. Jordan, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been an awesome interview. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Jordan Robertson. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.